open it with me to the book of Philippians chapter 4. We might actually finish Philippians today. I'm not going to promise you that because there's like three or four verses here that we could literally park on and, and spend a couple weeks. Uh, but uh, we'll just see how the Lord takes us through this. But in this series, it's called Joy-Filled Living. And we've been studying the Apostle Paul's life and his letter to this wonderful church, little small church there in Philippi, Macedonia. And uh, again, just reminding them and of just the joy that he has as he recalls them and the blessing that they've been to his life. As I've been sharing with you, you know, Paul's now in a Roman prison. He's writing back to a church that he had spent time in a little over a decade uh, prior to this writing. And he's just thanking them for when he was in prison there, when he was arrested in, in Jerusalem and taken to Caesarea Philippi, um, that this was a church that reached out to him. This was a church that just cared the same way that we talk about together we can, that they they showed their love. Um, you know, they they came out, they got involved. It, it's There's an old expression I love. It's called littles make bigs. And, you know, some people just can't be moved at all, but some people just, they realize it's just being part of something that's bigger than themselves. And and you've, you've heard every month, you know, Anthony would come in and go, hey, you know, uh, giving us the statistics. I mean, it's an amazing thing, a church our size, and to be able to give away on a month-to-month basis somewhere close to, you know, 10,000 10, plus pounds of food uh, that you guys make possible and the team that, uh, you know, has been put together with Together We Can and, and the needs of families, you know, hundreds of families whose lives are touched, you know, each and every month. Um, there's just something to be said about that. And so it's easy for me when I think about this and there's a joy that should come if you're participating in it, there's a joy that you have, you know, with it. You can also have a joy if you just attend Calvary Chapel Bakersfield, knowing that there are people that are here that are actively out, you know, uh, pursuing the things of God and trying to make a difference, you know, in people's lives. You know, I, I think about uh, today, you know, today is, is September the 12th. And, you know, we obviously celebrated the 20-year anniversary, you know, of, it wasn't a celebration, let me rephrase that, but a, a, a really a, a mourning, you might say, of 20 years of remembering, making a, fulfilling a promise that we made on that day that we would never forget those that uh, gave and lost their lives uh, in all the events that took place on, on 9-11. And it was interesting. I don't know how many by a show of hands, you watched something yesterday with regard to 9-11 or this week, you know, probably the majority of us, you, you saw something and, and we forget. I mean, we do forget. And, and so it's good to go back and to, to look and to, to watch and to remember and, and to remember how we thought and how we felt that day. And, and I so appreciated when I think about September the 12th, because it reminds me so much of what the Apostle Paul wants to encourage us with today. If you think about what took place on the 12th, we had a common enemy on the 12th, didn't we? And that brought people together. It's interesting how a common, a common enemy will, will unite people together. Well, the church has a common enemy. We don't have to go looking for one. We have one who, uh, the Bible says, the devil, Satan himself, who hates us, who wants nothing more than to steal and to kill and to destroy each and every one of our very lives. We have a common enemy. And that's part of what creates unity in the lives. I won't say everybody, but it creates a unity in the lives of people who really get it, who really understand it, because they realize, you go, people aren't the problem. You know, when people are always complaining and griping about people, 
you realize they're missing it because it's not the people, it's, it's the spirit behind it. There, we have an enemy of our soul that wants nothing more than to get us to focus on each other when we have a much bigger uh, enemy with regard to uh, Lucifer, Satan, you know, the devil himself. Um, and then you think about September the 12th and you go, what, what was the good aspect of it? There, there was a uniting together as a country. It didn't make any difference for a, you know, a moment in time if you were a Republican or you're a Democrat or if you were independent. And you think about it for a moment, you go, why didn't it matter? And you go, because people's lives were at stake. There was a scramble, wasn't there, at ground zero. I mean, there were men and women, children. I mean, there were professionals, volunteers alike that were risking their very life in hopes of finding someone alive. It started off, right, as a rescue, and it turned into a recovery. But on the 12th, it was about a rescue, wasn't it? And people would celebrate, you know, and, and there was, a, and if you remember seeing this in the, um, any of the programs that you might have watched, it, it was a terrible thing that happened. There were people that were starting to get cell phone um, calls from their loved ones who were trapped in the towers. And what had happened is when you know, the plane struck uh, the Twin Towers, people immediately got on their cell phones and it jammed our systems. Uh, it, there was an overrun, you might say, or an over, you know, just an abundance of calls that came in. And so they couldn't all, they got trapped in a sense. And some of it says it took you know, 24, 48, 72 hours for those messages to come through. And so for many families, they thought, and it was a cruel thing that happened, they thought that their loved ones were still alive. And that they were, they were trying, you know, to be reached and trying to help. And then ultimately the truth came out and they, they were lost. But on the 12th, when you think about it, they understood, everyone in America, that we had a common enemy that day. But we also had a common purpose. And like I said, and that purpose was to save people. And like I said, it didn't matter what walk of life you came from. We were going to do everything humanly possible. We were moving, you could say, heaven and earth. I mean, the equipment that was brought in and with painstaking care. And then when it turned into recovery, you hear the stories and how heartbreaking they, they were, but how, I mean, you talk about how not just being somber, but you talk about sacred. They looked at, 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 at ground zeros being what? Holy ground. I was listening to one program last night where they said, you know, it was a, a person who was involved in the recovery of, 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 you know, human remains. And he said, you know, that we found a hand, a man's hand. And he said, and it still had his wedding ring on it. And he goes, and with painstaking care, they worked. It was literally hours to remove this hand intact so that his wife would have something in order to have, find closure with. And you think about that and you go, wow, how important is a life? And you think, you know, What's happened since then in our country? You know, we've, we've lost the fact that we have a common enemy, you know, and anything that we see in our world today, it's really trying to pit us against one another. And there's people in the church that try to do the same thing. And yet, you know, the beauty of where Paul's coming from, if you want joy in your life is that you recognize, you come back to where it all began and understand the, the purpose of the gospel. What brought Paul joy was knowing that there was a church that even though they were over 800 miles away, from where Paul was at currently, that they still had a heart for him. They still, uh, he got news uh, of what was taking place in that church, and they still had a heart for people. They still had a heart for souls. And, and when you can become others-focused, I'll tell you this, of all the things, when you, if you want joy in your life, and as you, we study the end of this 
this chapter. I was thinking about that this week. Um, my sister-in-law, I, I shared with you, her name is Michelle, and, and her husband, uh, Tim, uh, just succumbed to a long battle with cancer, and, and we're going to host their his memorial service here at the church this week. And, and I've been talking to friends of hers and stuff and trying to get things mapped out for this next week. And, and uh, I always find it interesting, you know, how people deal with loss. You know, some people turn completely inward and, and you understand, I mean, especially when it's a spouse or, you know, a child, someone that's immediately directed, involved in your, in your life and your family. Um, it's definitely a personal loss, but people, they handle it differently. And, and the people that get through it well are the people who don't focus on themselves, but actually focus on other people. I, I've talked and met with so many people that have lost, you know, whether it's a, a husband or a wife or a child and asked them, you go, well, how are you doing? And they basically are able to say, you go, you know, I'm doing good as long as I focus on the needs of others. And I thought about that a lot as I was watching this 9-11 thing, you know, this, this, you know, past week, because that's really what it was about. You know, as a country, what brought us together was, again, understand that we had a common enemy. And then there was a focus and it was, it was the needs of other people. And so I want you to think about that with regard to if you have a joy meter today, and we all have one in our life, is where's your joy? Is it, is it empty? Is it full? And you'll find, I think, if you'll be open and honest with yourself, the more you focus on yourself, the less joy you experience in this life. But more that you focus your life on God, and on the needs of other people, even in the tough stuff, even the hard things of life, there is a joy because there's a joy that comes and a peace that comes with sacrifice. You know, it's like David who would say, you know, I will offer to the Lord that which, I won't offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Is that there, there's a price that we pay. You know, Jesus said, you know, if we wanted to become his disciples, you know, what was the first step in becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ? It's self-denial. Denying yourself. Jesus said, if you desire to come after me, then deny yourself. And you go, and that is so anti-American, isn't it? It just totally goes against the grain of, of who we are. And yet the Apostle Paul will remind us here, especially as he's talking about this church that he has such great affection for. And so I hope it, it speaks to you as it does to me. I titled this morning's message as we read verses 14 through 23. I titled it, Caring is Sharing. I learned that from my grandkids. Uh, my grandkids, you know, they'll be at the, over at the house. And, and so, you know, they're getting whatever they're getting. And, you know, Reese, you know, uh, one of our, our granddaughters, she would be there with her, her sister, uh, Quinny. And, uh, you know, so I'd say, well, you know, Reese, you know, you need to, to share. And, and so she would be trying to teach her sister. And so she would tell Quinny, she'd go, you know, Quinny, she goes, just know, you know, that, that, sharing is caring, you know, and she would teach that to her. And so then, then Quinny on her own would do that. And she would give something to Reese later on. And she would say, you know, she, you know, sharing is caring, you know, and, the, and there is that connection and that, and Paul really draws that out here in these, these verses here, verses 14 through 23. So I want to read it with you. And then uh, we'll just walk through as much as we can get through here this morning. And, and uh, I pray that the, the Holy Spirit would really just minister to our hearts and our lives, the things that he would want for us today. Verse 14, it begins this. It says, nevertheless, you've done well that you shared in my distress. It says, now you uh, Philippians, you know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, 
No church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid and once again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all in abound. I am full, having received from Epaphrodites the things that you sent, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Father, we, Lord, just as we finish this book, I pray that, Lord, each and every heart that's here in this sanctuary watching from home, Lord, would be filled with your joy today. Because, Lord, we know in the truest sense, joy has nothing to do with our circumstance. It has everything to do with our relationship with you. And Lord, we find peace in that. And we thank you for that. We thank you that, Lord, you are a blessing, God, that you are a good, good father. You are so good to us. And as Paul would start this letter, he would end it by the grace of God. And really, that's what it's all about. God, we don't merit your love. We definitely don't deserve it. But God, you lavish it upon us because you not only love us, your, your, your very nature, your character, who you are, as your word declares, God is love. And we thank you for that. And so, Lord, as we study this text this morning, as Larry mentioned in, in worship, God, we, we believe that you have something for each and every one of us. We all come from different places. We're in different states of, of life right now. But, Lord, thank you that, that you meet each and every one of us right where we're at, and you provide everything that we have need of. Lord, and we just love you for that, and we thank you, and we appreciate it. And, Lord, we pray that, Lord, you would just work in now our lives, the very things that you desire for us, that we would walk with you, that we would know you in a more intimate uh, way this week. We pray this for the glory of God and for our good as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when I look at this, um, if there's a word that really describes the church at Philippi, it's the word generosity. And, and I was looking at different definitions this week, and this one I, I, I really enjoyed, it. the definition of generosity is this. It says, Generosity is a state of the heart, not one's wallet. We rest in the knowledge that God is the provider of all things. He is gracious and he loves to bless his children. Confident in his provision, we give liberally out of it. We are generous because God has been and continues to be generous with us. And I like that. That is so good. You know, and as the Apostle Paul, like I said, closes out this book, again, it's primarily, it's a thank you letter. He's thanking the church. He's, he's looking back over the course of time. Like I said, it's 10, 12 years. He's looking back to the church at Philippi. You know, we think about the people who've really ministered to us and who blessed us in our times of need. And it's not a lot. And Paul's saying that there's there all kinds of churches. He was planting churches right and left, but they weren't all remembering him. They weren't all blessing him, but the church in Philippi was. And so if there's a key verse in this, in this section, it's verse 19, which says this, and my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And, and again, <laughs> there's a reason that this verse is so profound. And there's also a reason that this verse gets so taken out of context and why it's important as we study it today that uh, you know, we become as clear as we can possibly be that we're not guilty of making the same mistake, whether we apply it to ourselves 
or to other people. And what I want you to understand is in the laws of, of Bible study, we think about hermeneutics, you know, uh, every text has a context, meaning that every text was written for a specific purpose. Amen. It wasn't just, it's not just filler, like I've shared with you. It's not like an editor, like God was an editor and just told them, hey, we need some stuff to fill the pages, you know, to, to really capture these few good verses. Every, every word of scripture is God breathed. But yet we understand that every text then has a context. But yet a lot of times people will make this mistake in Bible interpretation, because when a Bible text is taken out of context, it becomes a pretext. And what I mean by that is you can twist any verse of scripture in the sense to say whatever you want it to say. But what you want it to say isn't necessarily what it actually means. And so it's important as we study this, we take a look at this because every text, like I said, has a context. Every author in the Bible had an audience that he was writing to, she was writing, she was expressing, he was expressing, whatever you want to look at, it's there in scripture. And so as we look at this, Paul is telling the, the church there in Philippi uh, that's been so generous to him financially. That's really what they've done. Financially, they've ministered to him and they provided, you could say, care packages for him. You go, I don't know what they provided fig newtons or uh, what would you provide back then maybe some incense you know they didn't have you know uh deodorant back in that day so something you know i don't know what they sent him but a care package of some sort and uh, again one of the things that you have to bear in mind here is when you read this this text and to read it in context did paul mention anything like this at all to the church when he wrote to the church in thessalonica you go no you go how about when he wrote to the church in Colossae? did he mention anything like this and you go no he didn't say to them, my God shall supply all of your need. He didn't say that. To them. Did he say that to the church in Corinth? You go, no. He said it specifically to the church in Philippi. And that's important to understand, to have it in context. And there was a reason why, and it's because of their generosity. People get this idea that, you know, yes, does God cause the rain to fall on both the good and the evil? Absolutely. You know, but God isn't blessing the evil, Okay. You know, that's not, that's never God's intent, okay? God blesses his children. God blesses those that he calls his own. He takes care of us. He provides for us. You know, I, I love reminding you, I go, was God faithful to you a year ago? Absolutely. Was he faithful six months ago? Absolutely. Is he faithful today? Absolutely. So then because he's the same yesterday and today and forever, can we look six months ahead and say that God will be faithful? Absolutely. How about a year from now? But yet you look at, especially in the area of finance and everything else, you get people that get so weirded out. Even Christians, like I said, we've talked about so much self-centeredness because they're so worried about they just won't have enough. I was going to do a message and really break it down into, you know, what kind of mindset do you have? You know, I think about Judas Iscariot. He was the, he was the, the purse holder, right? You know, do you have a, are you, is it, what kind of mindset? You know, are you a, a wallet or a purse mindset that, you know, it's, man, if it's in your wallet, it's yours. You know, remember how, you know, when the woman came and, and she broke the alabaster, you know, and anointed Jesus and Judas gets all upset, right? It says, and he, he held the money purse, right? And so he was frustrated because he said, you know, you realize we could have sold that, you know, and how much money we could have made, but he didn't care about the people. He only cared about himself. It was what, what he held on to. And then you look at, you know, in scripture, you think of different mindsets, you know, that there's people that have a, you could say a, a basket mindset. Remember when 
when Jesus fed, you know, the four and the 5,000. And you think of the one time in particular where the disciples, you know, uh, went and got the food. And then when there was enough left over, it says there was enough for what? 12 baskets, right? And then everybody wants to, you know, speculate. Why was there 12 baskets? And some say one for each of the 12 disciples who became apostles. So they would recognize and know that, you know, God provides, that, that God will meet our needs. And we don't have to worry about that. But, you know, the, the best, you know, examples in scripture, and you think about this as, as someone who gives or think about generosity, is when you have an abundant mindset. You know, you think about, you know, Jesus said, you know, that, man, God gives in such a way so that it would be pressed down and, and I mean, overflowing. You think Proverbs talks about baskets that are, get, that are overflowing and always the mindset is of what? It's of a farmer who has a field that has so much because he's left what? He's left some for the poor. He's allowed for gleaning to take place that God provides so abundantly that, that food in the sense of carrying a basket, it literally is falling out of the basket. There's so much in abundance. And there's people, you know, in the body of Christ, they, they are abundant givers. They are abundant livers. You know, they're, they're not worrying about, you know, hey, do I have enough? They, they, they know that God provides more than enough. Matter of fact, God provides abundantly above all that we would think and ask. And so, again, we all have to look at ourselves and you go, you know, again, and that, that, a lot of that is determining the joy that you have in your life. I mean, if you go throughout the day and you're worried about where the next buck is going to come from, you're going to miss so much of the opportunities that are right before you in life. And, and what you'll miss is, is the very thing that people, you know, really, like I've shared with you, at the end of life start to comprehend that it's not about stuff. It's about people. And that's what I love about this last section here in, in the book of Philippians is because Paul is kind of bringing it all into the proper perspective and the proper mindset for us is that we recognize that, you know what, it, it can never be about stuff. If you make it about stuff, you will be so frustrated. I mean, you think about covetousness, right? I mean, you could never have enough. There's just people that can just never have enough. They're just never happy. They're never satisfied. You know, it's just like Judas, it's the, the purse is, is, is really the thing that drives your life. And, and, and scripture says, you know, and, and when you live that way, it's like having a hole in the money bag. You're just going around and you could never have enough. And so Paul talks about this joy that he has that comes from what? Contentment. Would you say today that you're content? Because if you're not, you, you obviously know the opposite of that is you will not have joy. Joy comes from contentment, being content where you're at, content where God is, content with what God is doing, whether you have a lot or you have a little. I look at the people that get the most frustrated, they get the most angry, they get most bent out of shape. It's because they lack contentment. They're not satisfied with God. They're finding their contentment in the world, their satisfaction coming from the things of this world. And guess what? It'll leave you disappointed each and every time. And here's Paul writing to the church going, listen, I've had it all. I've had, a, I've had abundance. I've had nothing. And guess what? In all those things, I've learned what? God's still God. It's that old expression, you know, I didn't realize Jesus was all I needed until what? Jesus was all I had. That's just a, a wonderful contentment there. And again, what I love about this church in Philippi, it reminds me much of our church and the things that go on. They weren't a rich church. They, they were in one sense, they, they were poor when you look at some of the standards of, of church life, but they were extremely generous. And I look at that, I, sometimes it just blows me away. There, there's ways to measure that. It's not just in tithes and offering. 
It can be in service. It can be in, you look at the, the Together We Can ministry and you go, the, the amount of food that can be given away in the course of, of a month, you know, and you go, that's just littles making bigs. That's a bunch of, of individual people coming together, putting their hearts and minds together and God taking it and doing what? Blessing it and making it fruitful and doing what? Abundantly. We, I don't, uh, Anthony, have we ever run out? I mean, if we, we've always had more and we've had times when we first started. I mean, we're scared to death. We're standing there, we're like, God, please, please multiply. You know, Kimberly's over there laying hands on stuff. And, you know, the next thing you know, we end up with more than what we even needed. And to be able to see that, you know, you won't see that because you read it in a book. You saw it because you were there and you were watching it the same way that the disciples were there. Bless you. And, and you know, watching God take fish and loaves and then all of a sudden turn around and people are going, this, is, this cannot be done. And next thing you know, 4,000, then 5,000 people are, and really when you break that out in scripture, that's 4,000 men or 5,000 men, right? And then so if you take that and multiply it out, you go, well, then if that include women and children, you go, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And there's nothing too difficult for God. And so here's Paul writing to this church, you know, and, and he's telling them and, you know, how much they've been a blessing to him. You go all the way back to chapter one. He says, I thank my God, right? I thank my God upon what? Every remembrance of you. Do you remember the generous people in your life? You know? Do you remember God? You know, when you think about how generous people are. There, you know, in the, in the book of 2 Corinthians, you know, here's Paul bragging, you know, to the church at Corinth about the church in Philippi there in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 4. He says, moreover, brethren, he says, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. So he's talking about the church in Philippi, that in the great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty. Think about that. And, I mean, think about all the things that he's writing. You go, joy in that? This, it seems like he's, he misspelled a word or two, right? But he's going, in their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability. They were, they were doing more than what you would even think possible. It says, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. I, I had uh, a meeting last week with the Gideons. And uh, John Blake from the Gideons, uh, he and I were meeting. And he was talking about how, he said, Mike, you know, he goes, the Gideons, we go to churches big or small. We don't even care what size they're. We go to churches big or small. He goes, and um, I, you know, we hear stories all the time about how God just does amazing things. And this is why we don't care what the size of the church, because God doesn't care about the size of the church. He cares about the hearts of the people that are in that church. He said, in the South, he goes, we had one of our guys was telling a story. He went to this small church. It was just a handful of a bunch of old people is what he said. He goes, like himself, he goes, just like, he was like me. He goes, it was a, uh, and he's not much older than me. So I guess that puts me in that same category. So he, he says, I, the guy goes in, he goes, there's just a handful of people there. And he goes, I'm telling about the work of the Gideons. And he goes, and they're all, you know, yeah, do a good job, you know? And he said, and after uh, the sermon was over, he said, this uh, little old lady comes up to him and uh, she gave him a check. And he said, the guy put it in his pocket and he, you know, he thanked her and he took off and he opened it later on. And uh, he'd got an offering from the church. It was like, you know, uh, $150, $200. And uh, so he was just very thankful, you know, for that. And, and, and then he, he forgot about that. He pulled the check out and the check was for $25,000. And he comes back and he's like, you're not going to believe this. He goes, I, and he goes, 
Mike, he goes, we'd go to the biggest, and in that, there was a lot of big Baptist churches in the South. And he goes, thousands of people. And he goes, we didn't come close to ever receiving an offering like that. And he goes, and I think about Bakersfield. And he's got almost tears, well, it literally does, tears in his eyes as it went on. He goes, we, he goes, I, he goes, I, I go to churches. He goes, not because I necessarily wanted to. He goes, I was like the only one that was willing to go and stand up and say something, you know, for the Gideons. And he goes, I, I mean, and he named them, you know, the churches in town. And he goes, I went, they're the biggest churches in Bakersfield. And he goes, and then I called Calvary Chapel. And he goes, and I, I came over here and he goes, and he goes, I don't think I did a very good job. He goes, I just, you know, I'm just doing it because I'm just, I just, I want the Gideons to do well. And uh, he goes, and so I shared, you know, with your people and he goes, and uh, he goes, and I got done. And he said, he goes, and a couple days later, he goes, uh, I get a check in the mail from Calvary Chapel. And he goes, Mike, I just want you to know, and this is where the tears were. He goes, that was the largest give, giving that we'd ever received in Bakersfield. And he goes, and we go to, he goes, churches that, you know, there are overflow rooms bigger than your sanctuary. And it was one of those things where, and you got to understand something. I'm studying this text right here, okay? And I'm, I tell you all the time, if you counsel with me, I go, there's no such thing as a, as a coincidence. I believe in the God of providence. And I go, wow. I go, man, I, I told him, I said, John, I go, that's so awesome. Thank you for sharing that so I can tell that to our church. Because it wasn't me. It wasn't like, I, you know, it's like, hey, I'm boasting, you know, and no, I, it wasn't me. It was us. It was, it was Calvary Chapel Bakersfield. That, that wrote a check to the Gideons. And, and we didn't go, I didn't, we didn't ask the question, hey, what do other churches give you? You know, it, it doesn't even factor in. But it was totally, I can say this honestly, it was disheartening that you would think about the size of churches and that the work that, you know, the Gideons do, you know, in this country and who have been so faithful for so long, you know, in doing it. And so, again, it's just one of these great reminders, you know, of, of what it is, you know, and the difference that we can make in each other's lives. And so as I read, you know, Paul's, you know, writing here, uh, again, it's just so encouraging to me to, when I look at you and I look at the, what God is doing in the life of this church is it doesn't take a whole lot of people. Matter of fact, I'll kind of skip ahead because it's in my, it's in my mind, it's in my notes someplace, but uh, you know, there's all kinds of statistics. You know, if you read Barna research or Gallup polls or anything like that on church management and, you know, giving, tithing, all these type of things. And one that caught my eye basically said this, in a church, if you have a hundred, if your church has a hundred people, it says 17 of those hundred, hear what I'm saying. 17 of those hundred say that they tithe. They said, but if you talk to the church bookkeeper, you come to learn only three actually do. So 14 of them lied. Okay. But that's a good place for them to be is in a church. So that way, you know, God can save them. And, but you think about that, you go, I've always understood kind of what I share with you, the Pareto principle, you know, that, you know, 80% of, you know, the giving is done by 20% of the people that makes up, you know, the hundred percent or, or the work in a church. You think about the true ministry of the church. I'm not talking about a lot of people volunteer on Sunday, because I guess that makes us feel that we do something on Sunday, but then we're, we're nowhere to be found. And there's just things that go on, you know? I mean, I spent yesterday helping a family move that's, you know, in a 
terrible place. And, and you go, I've shared it from this pulpit. I've shared it in meetings. People can't plan their pain, <laughs> you know? I mean, so how do we just make everything an appointment? You know, you can't. There's just some things you just have to drop what you're doing and you sacrifice personal things, uh, you know, for the benefit of other people because that's what Jesus did. We live such a, a comfortable, convenient life here in the United States that doesn't necessarily reflect biblical Christianity. It reflects American Christianity, but not necessarily biblical Christianity. You think about what's going on in Afghanistan today, you know, and the, the suffering that's, that's taking place there. I mean, we, we have it really, really, really good here in the United States, even when we think we have it bad. You talk to people that really are truly immigrants from other countries that come into the United States even today, and as bad as we'd say things are, they go, hey, this is still, you want bad, go to where I just came from. And there's an old expression, and it's really probably the road that we're headed down, is you don't realize how good you have, have it until you don't have it any longer. A lot of the freedoms that we enjoy as a country, we're probably losing right now because we don't appreciate them. That, that, that spirit of generosity doesn't exist any longer. There's, there's the spirit of entitlement, you know, uh, that we deserve something. You know, what, you know what I deserve? Hell. That's what I deserve. Anything above that should bring me tremendous joy, and you likewise. But man, we can be so, so selfish. I love what Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, he once said, there are three conversions that are necessary. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the pocketbook. And it's usually the pocketbook is the last thing to get converted, he went on to say, in the life of a believer. You go, oh, I love God, you know. You know, and I, you know, my mind, but man, oh, my money is my money. You know, not realizing that actually all your money is God's. He's just very generous, you know, to offer to you 90%. And people go, well, you know, is it, does he even want 10%? No, he doesn't want 10%. He's just after your heart because where your treasure is, your heart be also. It's not that there was a number. Numbers were in the Old Testament. You know, it's interesting when you think about what the Bible says, though, about money. You know, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's estimated that one out of every six verses deals with money. And out of the 29 parables that we find that Jesus told, 16 of them deal specifically with a person and their money. So if you look at that, the Bible has about 500 verses on the topic of prayer, uh, less than 500 verses on faith, and yet there's more than 2,000 verses on money. Do you think money... Is important to God? You go, absolutely. And not because he wants your money. He realizes and knows how much we want our money. So much of, you know, I mean, you think about what Jesus taught. He taught more on the topic of money than he even did heaven and hell. I always find that fascinating. But let's be clear what the Bible is not saying here. You know, you'll hear people say, well, you know, Pastor Mike, money is the root of all evil. No, money is not the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. So I want to be clear on this. First Timothy 6.10 says this, for the love of money is a root, is a root. That's what it says, of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. See, when you forget that your life isn't about money and how much you make or anything else, it's about ministry. And in and if you make it about money, I can tell you this, because I've met a lot of people that have a lot of money and they're really miserable. Money can't buy you love. It can buy you sex, but it can't buy you love. You know, and you think about that. 
the value that we place on money. Money's not evil. It's just, it's amoral. It's just metal. It's just paper, right? That's all that it is. It isn't evil in and of itself, but lusting after it is. Here's some quotes on money. Mark Twain, I love this. He once quoted saying that he sat in a church service that was so boring, so dull, that the only thing that he got out of the service is what he took when the offering basket went by. I like this one. The only investment he said I ever made, which has paid consistently, increasingly dividends, is the money that I've given to the Lord. This was J.L. Kraft, the head of the Kraft Cheese Corporation. He says, all too often we regard stewardship as simply a matter of our giving to God, but this aspect is secondary. Before we can give, we must possess. And before we possess, we must receive. Therefore, stewardship is, in the first place, receiving God's goodness and bountifulness of his gifts. And once received, those gifts are not to be used solely for our own good. They must be used for the benefit of others. And their ultimate is for the glory of God, the giver. The steward needs an open hand to receive from God and then achieve, or excuse me, an active hand to give to God and to others. That was Mary Harris. Oswald Chambers put it like this. He said, with Christ, it's not how much we give, but what we do not give, that is the real test. F.B. Meyer said, he is the richest man in the esteem of the world who has gotten the most. And yet he is the richest man in the esteem of heaven who has given the most. Winston Churchill put it like this, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. So, so true. J. Vernon McGee, everybody loves J. Vernon McGee, right? He says, don't tell me you're trusting God until you trust him with your pocketbook. Our life is to be like a river, not a, a reservoir. You know, Jesus in Matthew 6, 21, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart be also. You can tell a lot about a person's spirituality by what they do with their money. If people were to look at your checkbook today, what would it say? It has a story. Would it say that you're trusting God? Would it say that you're invested in the kingdom of heaven, or would it say that your investments are here on earth? Those are just things to, to think about when you think about our money today. You know, if you looked at the church at Philippi, and you looked at their checkbook, you'd see this tremendous pattern of, of sacrificial giving. The church was generous. Again, previously they had supported Paul, you know, in a couple occasions, but somehow they'd lost touch with them. And I believe the only reason they lost touch was because Paul was on the move. They didn't have cell phone technology back then, right? They didn't have television. They didn't have, you know, cell phones. They didn't have GPS for sure. So again, Paul was constantly on the move. And so somehow they just, they lost track with him. But the beauty of it was, is once, and, and sometimes we'll do that with people. Oh, thank God. They, they haven't sent me a letter recently asking for money. Whoo, that's on them but you know full well that they're still out there and they still have a need, right? You know, and so the, the church at Philippi was recognizing that. They're going, man, you know, he's out there someplace. And when they found him, they, they send this. I mean, you got to think about this. Epaphrodites travels over 800 miles. Think about that. Not in a car, not in a plane, basically on foot. 800 miles to bring a large financial gift and some type of, you know, just a, gift of kindness, you know, necessities just to take care of the Apostle Paul, to do something, you know, for him. 
It's no wonder that both Jesus and the Apostle Paul would say it's more blessed to what? To give than it is to receive. Proverbs 24, 3 and 4 puts it like this. says, through wisdom a house is built and by understanding it's established and by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious, pleasant riches. So the point is this, like I said, money isn't evil. Riches aren't evil. Wealth in and of itself isn't evil. The issue really isn't money at all. It's our heart and it's our attitude towards it. I love that expression. You know, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. It's really what we think about money that controls what we do with it. So what are the benefits? What are the benefits of giving that we can kind of glean from this before we go today? It gives us, you know, I think a a little glimpse of joy-filled living. You know, Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, remember Paul wrote this. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And here was really the key in that. He says, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for all of you with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And so one of the things that we learn about generosity, what we learn about giving here, is it it provides for us a sense of ownership, you might say, or partnership, maybe is a better word. Because that's what Paul's saying. We're partners. When, you, when you're giving and you faithfully give to something, you're partnering in that. You know, it's pretty hard, you know, like I said, if you've never, if you don't tithe and you've not brought food and you're not, you know, participating, you know, in Together We Can, it's really hard to take pleasure in it because you go, oh, that's nice that you guys are doing that. But it's another thing when you go, hey, you know, we are. See, I, I love when this happens. I love when somebody visits the church and they say, you know, Pastor Mike, I really like your church. I really like your church. I, I like that. But what I love is watching the progression over time when they move from saying, hey, your church to um, our church to ultimately being able to say what? My church. This is my church. And I, I, that, that means more to me than anything else. I don't care. What's, it's not my church. So when they say that, I, I get what they're saying. But I, I love when they start moving into that where they have ownership or relationship. They start, you know, developing relationship with other people that then they go, hey, this is our church. I mean, I've, Larry and I sit around and talk about it because we've, we've gone here for a long time. And uh, how people just, and you see people around and how they move from church to church to church to church. And I'm not saying that God doesn't move people. He does move people. But I don't believe God moves people as much as people move people, though. And, and because it's a family. And you think about it, people that you thought were part of your church family, and all of a sudden they're not. You go, oh, we're part of the body of Christ, and we'll see them in heaven someday. You go, but I'm not going to see you. And I tell people that. I go, they go, oh, we'll still. And I go, no, we won't. I go, because our connection was here. It was in serving. It was doing things. So if you're somewhere else, or, you know, hopefully you're still going somewhere else, um, you know, I'm not going to see you. And, and it's never not proven itself to be true. It doesn't mean that you don't enjoy the moments that you get to spend with people. But man, there's something about being a family, a partnership. And that's what Paul, even though, like I said, it's, he's, he's 10, 12 years removed. And he's looking back on this and going, thank you. Thank you for not forgetting. Because remember, when you were in prison, the only you knew real quick because the government wasn't taking care of you. You know, if somebody didn't bring you food, didn't provide for you, you were a dead man. And the church was there for him. And he didn't forget that. And I pray that you and I don't forget the blessings, the people in our life that, that have contributed to 
where we're at today because no man's an island. Everybody opens a door for somebody else. And, and to be able, you know, you think about the people that God really blesses are the people who, who have a heart of gratitude. Like I said, we're going to be studying the book of Romans and we'll get into that real deep and understanding, man, when you are no longer thankful to God, what God does in that moment, man, he, he, he'll, he'll give up real quick in that regard. Gratitude, generosity. They're things that, like I said, just really stand out here. Verses 14 and 15 there, when you look at that, he says, nevertheless, you've done well. He says that you shared, there's the key, shared in my distress. Now, you Philippians know that also in the beginning from the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, he says, no church, the key shared with me concerning the giving and receiving, but you only. It says in verse 16 and 17, for in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again of my necessities, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. So when Paul says, you know, I, I, it's not that I want the money or I seek the gift. He says, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. That literally is talking about the interest that's occurred, uh, like on a credit side of a ledger there. Uh, there's interest, he's saying, uh, that's there in your account because of your investment in this ministry. And so in Paul's mind, it was like this. Paul preached the gospel and the church at Philippi would support him in doing that. And he says, and then all the fruit that comes from my, all the people who get saved, you know, through my ministry and all the ministry that goes on, he goes, that goes on to your account. So I want you to think about that today. So, because that's exactly what, what Paul is saying. That's what God is determining. All of us can't go. Okay, when Jesus said, go into the world, make disciples. If we all went, there'd be nobody left, right? So we have what? People who God specifically has called to go, who he has equipped, evangelists, pastors, teachers, you know, there could be you know, workers that God has called you to go. And then there's those that God has called to do what? To send. You, you're senders. You're, you're the ones you go, man, I'll work hard. I'll provide. I'll make it possible. And guess what? You go, because why would you do that? And you go, because every person who gets saved or every person who gets ministered to every person whose life gets changed, that goes on my account in heaven. You go, wow, that, that's a good thing. And so Paul's reminding that he's going, hey, just know that, you know, just because we're 800 miles apart, man, your investment in my life is adding big dividends, you might say, to your life. It goes on in verse 18. He says, indeed, I have all and I abound. I am full because I have received, having received from Epaphrodites, the things that are sent from you, a sweet smelling aroma and acceptable sacrifice. And again, well pleasing to God. You know, that should be the highest motivation, shouldn't it, of anything that we do, is to be well-pleasing to God, whether that's an attitude or an action. I mean, if you were to walk in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, what Paul was alluding to was what? Think about this for a second. Have you ever walked out of church? It might be too early for you guys. Have you ever walked out of church and smelled Salty's barbecue? You ever been in here? You come walking out of church and you go... I don't care if you're not even a meat eater. I mean, you just walk out and you go, oh, 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 oh. I mean, that's how it was in, in Jerusalem. They were at the morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice, right? They were offering, you know, these offerings before God. There was barbecue going on all the time. And so people, and Paul's going, I want you to understand that. And then what were they offering as well? Incense, right? They'd pour incense on the altar. So you have this barbecue. You got this really great smells that are going to, they're, they're just, they permeate the air. 
And Paul's going, that's what your giving's like. That's what your life is like. It's a sweet smelling aroma. And guess what? When you are generous, think about this church, when you are generous, it's like a sweet smelling aroma to God. You ever heard the expression, your attitude stinks? You ever heard that? Show of hands. How many, by show of hands, would have confessed you've ever had a stinky attitude? Yeah, you go, we all have. You know, the rest of you are a bunch of liars. And so, you know, may God have mercy on your soul. Um, But no, you think about this. You go, attitude is something, I mean, you can sense it. It's like God, he, he senses it. You know, it's like, it can be the attitude of your heart. You can go, Somebody who you think might be really super kind and sweet, they don't, they don't necessarily come out and they go, my attitude is really bad. Well, God sees. It says man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at what? The heart. God sees this. And so Paul is just encouraging them. He goes, I want you to understand, I mean, what you're, what you're doing. He says, it was a sweet smelling aroma. They made the connection. They, they understood it, an acceptable sacrifice. That's what happened in the Old Testament when the sacrifice was made. I mean, this was their belief, right? They were offering a sacrifice before God and the smoke would go up and they believed that it was going up to heaven and the smoke would enter the nostrils of God and he would be well pleased with that sacrifice. And then their sins for that year and for only that year were what? They were covered. They weren't removed, but they were covered. Day of Yom Kippur, right? They have to come back once a year on this day. But what would happen? What was the belief if, if the smoke going up from that sacrifice was going to heaven and the wind came along and blew the smoke away. What do you think the people believed in that moment? They were unforgiven. They believed that, ooh, my stinky attitude before God, guess what? It wasn't received from God as a sweet smelling aroma. And they didn't walk away, you know, as a family holding hands, whistling Dixie, all excited. No, they went away feeling, oh my gosh. I don't have the favor of God. But thank God we can enjoy the favor of God today because of Christ Jesus. Amen. We've all failed. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus, the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, was a fragrant aroma in the nostrils of God so that we could find peace through him. And man, we need to appreciate that. And so we understand, you know, the highest motivation should be the glory of God. And hopefully it is in each of our lives. And so when you think about, you know, giving, just understand this, you know, in the New Testament, there's no dollar amount that's set. You can go back and study the tithe. It's a, it's a term from the Old Testament. I'll tell you, though, if you study a tithe out in the Old Testament, you'll find that the, the children of Israel, they had two tithes in the course of the year. And then in every third year, they had another tithe. So the average, you might say, if you want to take a percentage of the Jew in the Old Testament was somewhere between 23 and 30% of their income. In the New Testament, God doesn't put a number on it. So if somebody's telling you that, that, that's not true. Scripture says that what we should do on this day, on the first day of the week, we should set something aside for God. That's proportionate to what you make. God, again, isn't in need of your money. What he wants is your heart because he knows your money gets between you and God's heart for you. You trusting him and believing that God can supply all of your need. That's why that verse 19 is so profound. He said, my God shall supply all of your need by his riches and glory that are in Christ Jesus. So you finally get to that place when you see it again. There's, there's something about it. Some of you today, I'll wrap it up with this. Some of you, you give on the back end. So what I'm saying is 
you, you don't give out of faith. You, you give maybe because either guilt or, you know, it's kind of like that. I always like that story about the guy who gave to the IRS. He sends it in an unmarked envelope with a note. And he just said, you know, I haven't paid my taxes in, in years and I'm having a hard time sleeping at night. And he goes, so here's a hundred dollars. He goes, and if I can't sleep, he goes, I'll send you more. You know, and it's kind of like, that's how we give. It's like, we want, we want something, whether we're honest about it or not. Maybe we're not at peace or we're not happy. Or maybe, you know, you live by, you know, you go, oh, this bad thing happened to me. And it must be because I didn't tithe. Like that's how God operates or something. You know, our, our own mind just plays tricks on us. And you, you give on the back end. So you pay yourself first, you pay everything else. And, and then if there's anything left over, you go, oh, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give that to God. That's the book of Malachi. That's the cancerous cow. That's going, hey, we'll offer this cow to God because we're not going to eat it because it's got cancer. And guess what? It's nothing new. The children of Israel did that. But the person of faith gives on the front end. Person of faith goes, God, I'm giving to you on the front end for this very purpose because it makes me live by faith. Because I have to trust you. Because if I give on the back end, do I even need God? No. You're just going, hey, I got some leftover. You know, here, I'll do this. But to give up your first fruit, like God did when he gave his only begotten son for us, to give on the front end, you go, what does that mean? That, that makes me dependent upon God. And that's what the church at Philippi was about. They were so generous they were so dependent upon God. And so Paul's recognizing that about them. They were a poor church. They were like Jesus recognizing the widow, giving a widow's might. And Jesus going, you know, he hears this, those that come in and they offer all kinds of money and it's a clanging, you know, because they want everybody to hear it. And then you have this woman who drops in, you know, widow's might. One sixteenth of a penny. And Jesus is going, well, she gave out of what? Her poverty. I mean, and she trusted. And to be able to do that with joy, because what? Of having this understanding in your heart. Do you, do you believe this today? Do you, do you really believe that God will supply all of your need by his riches and glory that are in Christ Jesus? Because that's, that's really the question at hand. Do you believe that God provides? Because if you do, you'll become generous because you don't live in fear. But if you don't really believe, you know, maybe you're one of those today, like, like, like Judas, see, it's in, you know, one in that, you know, it's like a bird in a hand is what, you know, better than two in the bush, so to speak. So you go, that's in my wallet. So, you know, it's mine. What's there is mine. And you go, man, it's not, it's not, it's all his. It all belongs to him. And when you live that way and you go, God, it's all yours. And whatever you desire for me, make a way. And to live with your heart and your hand wide open. There's such a peace that comes with that. Such a peace. I'll close with this. I love this, this imagery, you know, that in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, where Jesus said this himself. Talk about, you know, God generously treats those who treat others generously jesus said it he said given it shall be given to you good measure pressed down shaken together running over will be poured into your lap for with the measure that you use 
it will be measured back to you. And it's so, so, so profound. So profound. And understand this as we close. There are many things money cannot buy. Money can buy you a bed, but it can't buy you sleep. Money can buy you books, but it can't buy you brains. Money can buy you food, but it can't an appetite. It can buy you finery, but it can't buy you beauty. It can buy you a house, but it can't buy you a home. It can buy you medicine, but it can't buy you health. It can buy you pleasure, but it can't buy you peace. It can buy you a crucifix, but not a savior. It can buy you a church building, but it can't provide heaven. God in his generosity did that for me and for you. When he sent his son to die on a cross, all generosity starts at the foot of the cross. In order to give, you must first receive. And my hope, you know, in your life that when you receive Jesus, that that leads to a life of giving. Again, to be Christ-like is to be a follower of him. And Jesus said, no greater love is any man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. That our generosity wouldn't just be about what's in our pocketbook, but it'd be our very life, that we would, we would live our life like Christ would live his. That's my hope for me. It's my hope for you. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we, we close out this book, I thank you so much for what the Apostle Paul would remind the church when he would say, and now to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you and all the saints greet you, but especially those who are in Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That's my hope, Lord, for us is that we would grow in the knowledge of your grace, that unmerited favor, not anything that we've ever done, but Lord, what you've done for us. And that same grace that we enjoy ourselves, that Lord, we would lavish that grace upon other people as well. Not just the people who give to us, Lord, but even those that just take from us. That, God, we would become more like you. We pray this for your glory and our good as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, I invite you.